has a starting point, their first step into becoming something bigger than themselves. And for Don Bluth, his first step came with a little help from a small and rambunctious cat. This is the story of Banjo the Woodpile Cat. This is Toys R Us. Uh, what's your name, little buddy? Banjo. <gasps> Ooh, a sparkly. Dragon's Lair, a fantasy adventure where you become a valiant knight on a quest to rescue the fair princess from the clutches of an evil dragon. Judgment. Judgment? Oh, not to worry, Charlie. You'll go to heaven. All dogs go to heaven because unlike people, dogs are naturally good and loyal and kind. Huh. Yeah, that's true. Cock-a-doo, what a day. The sun is shining brightly. Cock-a-doo, sunny day. Down here on the farm. Tumbleina. She's a funny little squirt. Tumbleina. Tiny angel in a skirt. Tumbleina. She's mending and baking, pretending she's making things hard. A troll in Central Park. The Pebble and the Penguin. Dancing bears, painted wings, things I almost remember. And a song someone sings once December. Titan A.E. Get ready for the human race. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to the Toys R Us podcast. And welcome back to the 12 Days of Don Bluth. Yesterday we talked about the man himself. And today we are going to start with his directorial debut. That being said, are you ready? You bet. We are short We start our story in 1972, which I know it probably was in 1972, but I hear 1972 and I hear, <laughs> just so like, attribute CCR yeah. to the 70s. Uh, Don Bluth and Gary Goldman had arrived at Disney Animation the year before and had started, started, started their, started their journey into the world of animation. Don and Gary were knowledge-hungry students, but they, along with a handful of other animators, were concerned that they weren't learning quickly enough. Yeah. Almost every day, Blue and Goldman and the other new hires were told that they would have to take over the animation department when the famed nine old men retired. <laughs> no pressure. These men are Les Clark, Mark Davis, Ollie Johnston, Milt Call, Ward Kimball, Eric Larson, John Lonsbury, and Wolfgang Retherman. Hmm. And 
Frank Thomas. They created some of Disney's most famous animated cartoons, from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs onward to The Rescuers, and were, were referred to as such by Walt Disney himself. Oh, all, it doesn't get much better than that. No. All members of the group are now deceased. John Lonsberry was the first to die in 1976 from heart failure, Ooh. and the last survivor was Ollie Johnson, who died in 2008 from natural causes. All have been acknowledged as Disney legends. That's such an old-timey name. Ollie Johnson. Ollie, Ollie Johnston. Ollie Johnston. Ollie Johnston. The responsi- responsibility of one day replacing the nine weighed heavily on the shoulders of these young animators. <laughs> sure. During a bike ride on the studio grounds, Blue and Goldman discussed the responsibility and the level of skill they, w- they would have to possess. Both agreed it would be impossible to attain... In a few years, the skills that took the nine old men decades to accrue. Yeah, that's true. In order to accelerate the learning process, Don and Gary decided to continue practicing during their hours off. That's some dedication. Hell yes. I mean, animation, man, that's... That's rough. Yeah, and to just be like, okay. Any, I'm any do it really, though, too. any creative endeavor. Yeah, it's... it's Because, like, I feel like you spend 75% of the time doubting yourself. Yeah. Right? You're yeah. like... Easily. Even some of the best animators that I like I know personally but, but like they just they don't believe in themselves. Yeah. I think it's it's a curse of us creative types. It is. It is. Like you're you never in think your it's mind good right. In your mind you could always be doing better. Yes. Right? Like yes. you could always you're like, God, that's okay, but like it's not how I, I thought of it in my mind. So right. Yeah. There there's a certain level of disconnect. There is. Right? Absolutely. Like just think about how the fu- how the world's gonna be for like future creators that will have the technology. Well, here's my brain. Yeah. Now it's just literally on paper. You know yeah. like like Wi Fi your brain yeah. and the fucking computer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they continued to practice during their hours off, and Don offered the use of his garage and his moviola machine. A moviola is a device. <laughs> Speaking of old timey names, <laughs> moviola. Hey, do you like movies? Yes. <laughs> Come over here. I'll show you my moviola. It sounds very vaguely sexual. To yeah, you. it does. You want to look at my moviola? You touch my tra-la-la. <laughs> my ding-ding-dong. Uh, a moviola is a device that allows a film editor to view a film while he's editing. Oh. It was the first machine for motion, motion picture editing when it was invented by Ewan Surrier in 1924. The moviola company is still in existence and is located in Hollywood, where a part of the facility is located on the original moviola factory floors. <laughs> is baller. His original concept in 1917 for the Moviola was as a home movie projector to be sold to the general public. The name was derived from the name Victrola. Oh. Since he thought his invention would do more for home viewing what the Victrola did for home music listening. However, since the machine cost $600... Whoa! In 1920... I was gonna say... Equivalent to almost $8,000 today. Boom. Very few sold. An editor at Douglas Fairbanks Studio suggested that Ewan should adapt the device by using it for film editors. He did this, and the Moviola as an editing device was born in 1924 with the first Moviola being sold to Douglas Fairbanks himself. 
94 years later, a framed copy of the original receipt still resides at the Moviola Company in Hollywood. That is epic. That's fucking awesome. That is baller as fuck. Many studios quickly adopted the Moviola, including Universal Studios, Warner Brothers, Charlie Chaplin Studios, Buster Keaton Productions, Mary Pickford, Map Senate, and Metro Golden Mayor. Golden Mayor. The advent of sound, 65mm and 70mm film, and the need for portable editing equipment during World War II greatly expanded the market for the Moviola's products. One editor, Michael Kahn, who received an Academy Award nomination for Best Film Editing in 2005 for his work on Steven Spielberg's Munich, which he edited with a Moviola. Baller. That's fucking, like... That is killer, dude. That's because Steven Spielberg does, like... He's, like, OG J.J. Abrams. Yeah. Right? Like, they probably kind of look alike, too. Yeah, slightly. Right? Yeah. Oh. Huh. I Um, thought of that. Eventually, Gary Goldman agreed to Don's plan, and by the end of 1973, John Pomeroy had also joined Don and Gary. By then, more equipment had been acquired. A camera, an editing table, and another moviola. As more animators joined Don, Gary, and John, the group began to get a crazy idea. Maybe they should make a film. Not a feature-length film, but a short. The team initially decided to make a film about the Pied Piper of Hamburg. However, the film ballooned to a feature-length project which would have required too much of the animator's times. Because well, yeah, at this point, they were still... part-timing. Yeah, they were still working at Disney. Yeah. Talk about burning the animation camera yeah. at both ends. Yeah. Beautifully drawn, both ends, you know? <laughs> uh, it was then when Blue thought of an experience from his childhood. When he grew up on a farm in Payson, Utah, there was a cat who had lived in the farm's woodpile. One day, the family found that the cat had disappeared. Uh-oh. The family figured the cat moved on and forgot about it. A few weeks later, however, the cat returned and never left again. The team found this experience charming and began concocting the story of what might have happened to the cat during its time away. Man, you worried me there for a second. <laughs> no. It's wholesome. Uh, the story eventually became Banjo the Woodpile Cat. Banjo opens with the chorus singing the title song as the camera uh, views a small farm. It is 1944. As the titles end, chickens come exploding from the coop with Banjo chasing behind them. His sisters, Emily and Jean, tell their parents and Banjo's papa tries to stop Banjo as the sisters and mother look on. (laughs) Banjo stops when he runs headlong into his father and apologizes and says he won't do it again. Then he'll do it. Which is like that fucking hilarious animation trope where like someone's not looking and then all of a sudden, bam. Yeah. Also called the Jason Voorhees effect. Yeah. Yeah. As the song rises again, there's a montage of still and animated scenes showing Banjo still full of mischief, including smoking the pipe from the snowman while sitting on its head and seeing his reflection in a Christmas tree ornament. This ends with him and his sisters walking along the roof of a chicken coop. Banjo tells the girls that he has heard that a cat will always land on its feet and that he can prove it by jumping off the roof. Oh, bad idea. The girls refuse, but Banjo grabs their tails, and all three go sliding off the roof into the snow. <laughs> Papa is now very angry and demands that Banjo go get a switch from the field for an obvious spanking. Uh-oh. Which is like Disney would never. Yeah. <laughs> Raise this ass old fucking Song of the South, but a switch for punishment? Yeah. No. no. Uh, while looking 
for a switch, Banjo feels sorry for himself and threatens to run away from home. That'll teach him. <laughs> At that moment, he overhears the driver of a feed truck talking about the good times in Salt Lake City. Banjo makes up his mind to leave, and by grabbing a rope on the truck, he hitches a ride to Salt Lake City. A small musical stand follows Banjo as he watches his home get farther away. In the city, Banjo finds plenty of excitement, once again largely through a series of stills and vignettes. He sees magazines, tries beer, plays around at a pool hall, and other vices. Eventually, he runs into trouble in traffic and causes major collisions. Uh-oh. This begins a series of vignettes showing Banjo wearing the wearing of the city lights and excitement. When it begins to rain, he looks for shelter. The first location is filled with rats, so he leaves. Finally ending huddled up in a small canyon and alley. Yeah. He looks at his puddle and sees his family reflected in the pond, and he breaks down and cries. Poor kitty. Suddenly a bravely voice is heard in the distance, singing. It's Crazy Lance, who discovers the lost kitten in a can. They struck up a friendship when Crazy tells Banjo the kitten can go back home by finding the truck he originally rode out on. Ooh. As they began to search, Crazy suggests that they look for some of the good times that Banjo wanted to see along the way. Crazy and Banjo come to a nightclub that Crazy recognizes, so they go inside to look. Inside, three cats, Zazu, Melina, and Cleo, are singing a Boogie Woogie style number on the stage. Nice. After the song, the leader of the trio, Zazu, comes over to Crazy and meets Banjo. She suggests that Banjo should go home, and the, ki- and the kitten becomes depressed again. <laughs> to cheer him go up, home, kid. Crazy and the girls break into a musical number. I'll stick with you, kid. And Banjo ends up joining in. Afterwards, Crazy asks all the cats to look for the feed truck. Later that night, Banjo and Crazy are going through a dark alley when they encounter some mean dogs. A chase begins, and the pair only escape by climbing up a series of boxes. The pair arrives at the singing cat's home, and Banjo goes to sleep. Before Crazy goes to sleep, he prays that he will, he will be able to find the truck so that Banjo can go home. <laughs> so I can be rid of this <laughs> He's like, this cat. motherfucker. This cat is going to be the death of me. The next morning, when Banjo wakes up, he hears the driver of the truck out in the street. All parties rejoice as Banjo, Crazy, Zazu, Molina, and Cleo all go to the truck to say goodbyes. Suddenly, Banjo is now sad. Now it is because he will be leaving his new friends. Crazy and Banjo... Crazy and Banjo take so long to say goodbye that the truck leaves. Whoops. However, Crazy manages to get Banjo on board, and the kitten waves goodbye to his new friends. When the truck arrives home, Banjo hops off and into the middle of his family. He's home now, and plans to never leave again. No. End titles. On a technical level, Banjo the Woodpile Cat is what Don Bluth calls an exercise. A film where the young animators could apply the new techniques they were learning. This goal really shines through in the film, which features a lot of uh, cool effects. Shadows, reflections on the water, and that, you know, famous Don Bluth touch. Yeah. During the making of Banjo, Don Bluth showed the short to then-Disney CEO Ron Miller. Bluth offered to sell the distribution rights to Disney, but Miller refused, saying that Disney was not encouraging its animators to participate in outside projects. <laughs> dicks. Seriously. Just dicks. Cocks in dicks. Mm-hmm. Little bag of dicks. Uh, for Bluth, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. 
For years, Booth had been growing frustrated with the quality of Disney's animated films. Now, his short, his strongest expression of creative freedom, had been rejected. I'll go make my own studio with blackjack and hookers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> with banjo and hookers. <laughs> Bluth took that, as, that it was a sign for him to move on. On September 13th, 1979, his 41st birthday, he... Goldman and Pomeroy resigned from Walt Disney Studios. Boom. The next day, a large chunk, but not all, of Blue's crew also left Disney. <laughs> so Got him. Like, oh, you know what? We're Who's gone coming with me? Mm-hmm. After the resignation, Don Blue's Productions, as the group was now called, had much more time to devote to Banjo and production accelerated. Unfortunately, audiences didn't get a, a chance to see Banjo, the Woodpile Cat, until Don Pluth Productions was really on its way. By the time the short was aired on TV, there were flashier Pluth projects around to capture the public's eye. Therefore, poor little Banjo was lost in the shuffle. Aww. Poor and, Banjo. You know who won't be lost in the shuffle? Ooh, tell me. Our fact-finding friend, Facty. He wouldn't run away. He's no. got too much knowledge. He does. He knows better. He knows better. The rain and snow effects seen in this movie are reused live-action passes thrown away by Disney Studio in favor of cheaper and faster techniques. <laughs> so he's like, I'm oh, using your yoink. leftovers. <laughs> On March 11, 2009, a Dragon's Lair-esque version of the film under the name Banjo the Woodpow Cat Adventure Game was developed and released on the iPhone and iPad Touch by Iconic Apps. <laughs> the vocal talents are... Sparky Marcus as Banjo. Sparky Marcus. Scatman Crothers as Crazy Legs. Nice. B. Richards as Zazu, the leader of the Cat Sisters. Um, Banjo has a 78% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. That's pretty good. Not bad at all. There are a number of songs that were written but never made it into the final production. These included The Demolition Patrol, Oompa Lala, and The Rubber Tree Song. Oh, dang. And with that, we close the book on another day of the 12 Days of Don Bluth. Join us tomorrow for more fun. Until then, remember that succeeding sometimes means leading a coup against Disney. True. And remember, you will always be a Toys R Us kid. <laughs>